It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 75 of the Night Talker at 1045. Where are we at in society? The state of California is hosting the first ever homeless World Cup. And I hear that most of the teams there stink. At 10.15, it is the first of my weekly two-segment chat with Justin Wells of Inside Texas, InsideTexas.com, and the On Texas Football YouTube channel. And coming up in seconds, more from SEC Media Days, including an elusive Kirby Smart and Aggie record-keeping on full display once again. I am your host, Trey Elling. Give me a follow on Twitter, at Courtesy Wave. And do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. It is day two of SEC Media Days in Nashville. I believe this is a three-day event. If so, it will wrap tomorrow. If not, well, we'll have one more day's worth of material to give you. A couple things to note from today and one from yesterday. And let's go ahead and start about an hour and a half drive away from Austin and College Station where Texas A&M was represented on day one of SEC Media Days. I'm sure you've seen some pictures by now of the Aggie players who showed up in Nashville all insisting on wearing sunglasses and doors. Business as usual look, I guess, but business as usual is not necessarily a good thing for Texas A&M. This after a 5-7 2022 has Jimbo Fisher searching for answers and the players using a sort of Aggie math, Aggie logic, Aggie record keeping to reframe what actually happened in 2022. Jimbo faced a number of questions on Bobby Petrino and what his actual role is on the offensive side of the ball. Remember now, Petrino ended up leaving a job that he has just taken, I believe at UNLV, with Brendan Marion, former Longhorns wide receivers coach, ultimately taking over the gig that Bobby Petrino vacates as the OC there to come serve in the same capacity at Texas A&M. But Jimbo isn't being forthright as to whether or not Bobby Petrino is calling plays on offense. Quote, I'm not going to get into that. Bobby was hired for a reason. Tremendous guy. Tremendous football mind. Hopefully, he'll call the game and have suggestions. Hopefully. Jimbo, you're the head coach. I think you should be saying one way or the other, hopefully you're not leading Bobby on, hopefully you're being forthright with him, but are you really that worried about somebody knowing what Bobby Petrino's tendencies are on offense, that you're afraid to say that he's calling plays, or you're trying to deflect from the fact that you're actually the one calling plays? Either way, Jimbo Fisher having a hard time just giving an honest answer to the media covering SEC media days. He's not the only one, by the way. This isn't just a Jimbo Fisher thing, but A&M fans are stuck with Jimbo Fisher likely through the end of the decade because of that ironclad contract that they not only signed him to initially, but then decided to give an extension on, what, prior to the last season? Good luck, Aggie fans. By the way, they're players, as I just mentioned, using Aggie record-keeping to talk about 2022 
This comes from defensive lineman McKinney Jackson, one of several players representing the Ags in Nashville. He was asked about what the focus has been, and he just goes on and gets a little bit sports cliche with regards to staying focused on the task at hand, not letting distractions trip you up. And he does ultimately say, based on how close A&M is to getting back to prominence, that, quote, we would have been 10-2 and last year if not for those one-possession losses. Funny how that works, isn't it, McKinley-Jackson? That could tell you one of a couple of things. It could tell you that you are close to getting this back to good versus really unachieving, considering that A&M was consensus top 10 to start the 2022 season to fall short of a bowl game. Well, I'm a Longhorn fan, so I'm not going to say too much about that because I remember two years ago, but it was a bad look for you guys. You said history in terms of where you started in the polls versus where you ended up. If not, you tied some bogus history regarding a preseason top 10 who doesn't make a bowl game. But the uh, Aggie record-keeping is that it should have been 10-2 and last year, but there were just... Those darn one-possession losses. Five of them to count. Because the other side of that coin is that you weren't very good at closing games. And is that something that changes from year to year? Maybe. It depends on the pieces in place, but it also depends on the guys providing coaching on the sidelines. Remember, Tom Herman was not good in one-possession games in Austin. And a lot of that came down to the decisions that he was making on game day does feel like the same thing is happening in Aggieland right now. But hey, maybe the players will make the big difference this year. Good luck in the SEC West. Your final year in that brutal division. Kirby Smart was amongst the coaches speaking today as the Georgia Bulldogs are featured on day two of SEC Media Days in Nashville. And he was elusive with regards to some of the -the off-the-field stuff happening to that program coming off of a second straight national championship. And you can ask whatever questions you want to. You're not going to get Kirby Smart to say anything about that. He did provide some interesting info with regards to how he is keeping his team from becoming complacent. As a matter of fact, he's given a quote that's floated around Twitter today. Quote, the threat for us is complacency. One thing that they did is study New Zealand's national rugby team. It is the best rugby team in the world. They've literally won the Rugby World Championship 19 out of the last 27 years. Earned World Rugby Team of the Year honors 10 times in that span since the award was initiated in 2001. And they won 77% of games since 1903, so going back 120 years now. Needless to say, they have a track record for success. And so Kirby and his team studied what exactly it is that they do so well. Here's a quote from Kirby Smart on the All Blacks. Quote, we took a deep dive. We took six weeks. We took a title and mantra from them. 
and studied those things for six weeks because we don't want complacency. They've done it better than anybody else, and we use that. One of their big mantras is, quote, better never rests. We believe that. Those are strong words now when you think about it. Think deep on it. Better never rests. Our kids understand it. Our kids have learned it. What drives us for this season is intrinsic motivation. We're not going to be controlled by outside narratives and what people say and who's going to be quarterback. There it is from Kirby Smart. A motivating factor for this year's team in avoiding complacency. Better never rests. Is that why better was drag racing in the early morning hours after that second national championship game win? I'm sorry, that was wrong. You can't connect those two things. I realize that was a a figure of speech. Better never rest. Better does rest sometimes. You got to get sleep. If you don't get good sleep, you can't be better. Sleep is an important part of the better equation, but at the same time, better never rests. Definitely doesn't uh, drag race in the overnight hours either. That was completely unrelated to the Georgia football program and not something that Kirby Smart needed to comment on any further. He has said his piece, and that's that. He's going to move on. All right, coming up, we continue the college football conversation with Justin Wells of Inside Texas and the On Texas Football YouTube channel. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It is a Tuesday on the Night Talker, which means that I get a couple segments with Justin Wells, my friend from Inside Texas, InsideTexas.com, and the On Texas Football YouTube channel. Justin, thank you as always for the time. How are we doing tonight? We are doing well, Trey. Always a pleasure. Got to see you last week at AT&T Stadium. So I was, uh, I'm a little spoiled. I got a little bit more trailing than I'm used to. Let me tell you this. And I'm not saying it at all tongue-in-cheek. There were a lot of great moments from Big 12 Media Days last week. Getting to speak with Sark and Quinn Ewers, Chris Kleiman, Joey McGuire. What an impressive dude he is to stand next to and have a conversation with. Sonny Dykes. But my favorite moment of those two days was your warm embrace on day two. It's likewise, brother. It's been so long since we've ever actually seen each other. Obviously, we do the Zoom, and so we see each other on a, a semi-regular basis, but there was a time where we would interact with each other quite a bit back yeah. in the Horn days, and so um, it, it felt good to, to for that embrace, man. You're, you're one of my best friends, and you're one of the best that, do, that does this, and it's always a blast, man, to, to catch up. The feeling is mutual. Now that we've uh, given one another a a quick two-minute massage, let's get into the football talk this week, starting with the recruiting landscape. Some potential good news coming down the pipe for the Longhorns. A couple of guys are announcing later this week who uh, do have the Longhorns in their top three to five. So uh, let's talk first about DeAndre Robinson, defensive lineman. Uh, what do Horns fans need to know about him, and how are you feeling about this recruitment right now? 
This is a really good battle with Florida, the in-state power. That's what he grew up liking. He, he's about an hour, hour and a half from Gainesville. They're pushing really hard, but Texas really put a good foundation on this recruitment in early January when he came in, late January for his, for his uh, junior day. They seemed to really strike a chord. Bo Davis had a great pitch. Family really, really liked it. They came back multiple times. Texas really put themselves in a good spot here. And, you know, they're looking to get four – Really good defensive lineman in this 2024 cycle. They're halfway there with Alex January out of Duncanville and then Melvin Hills out of Lafayette, Louisiana. And so now they go for DeAndre Robinson. They've been dipping their toe in Florida the last few cycles, Trey, especially in that area. He's an Orlando Jones guy. And, and there's two other Orlando natives on the roster right now and CJ Baxter and Peyton Kirkland. And so Texas is doing their best to to do some ZZ Top. They're going nationwide. <laughs> they go West Coast for talent. They go Southeast Coast for talent. And right now they're they're firmly in the mix for DeAndre Robinson, who's going to announce on Thursday from his school. Yeah, it's no disrespect to look outside of the state of Texas as great as the high school football is here, obviously, and plenty of great recruits coming out of Texas. You're doing a positive service to players in this state by making sure that everybody knows, look, we're not going to limit ourselves just because of uh, regional proximity. We are going anywhere that we can to find the best talent at a given position because the other reality, too, is that some years a position group is better one place than another. And I'll never have an issue with the Longhorns going and finding some of the dogs that exist in the state of Florida. It's just a different mind frame out there. It really is. You know, Gus Malzahn at the Big 12 Media Days called it, you know, Florida speed. They've got just a, a, a really good crop of athletes. They do year in and year out. You saw the run of Florida State in the 90s and 2000s. You saw the run of Miami in the 80s and late 90s, early 2000s. And then you saw the Florida runs in the late 2000s. You know, these are all fueled by in-state studs. But Sark has proven it's not his job to always get the very best player in Texas. It's his job to get the very best best player for the Texas Longhorns football program. And he knows that there's going to be some years he's not going to have to venture very far. A lot of times the in-state talent is going to be as good, if not better than anywhere else. Sometimes you got to go by different positions. And in 2024 cycle, the defensive line Paul in state just isn't that solid. And the year before you're going to the SEC, you have to be prepared. And that's why you see Sark dip his toe down in Louisiana and in Florida and in Mississippi and in Georgia to, to go get these, these, these type of talents. And that's how you build for the SEC and how you compete early when you get there. So uh, just to be clear, you do feel good about the Longhorns landing DeAndre Robinson services later this week. I do. I think Texas has a great shot at getting his commitment on Thursday. And, I, and I'll say that and I'll also I'll finish it with, Florida is not going to stop recruiting him. Mm. They are going to continue to push similar to, to the way Florida State did with Cedric Baxter. After he committed, they kept pushing. Similar with P.K. Kirkland, other schools started pushing. He stayed true, and I think that's what's going to happen with Robinson. I think Texas is in the best spot right now, but they're going to have to fight Florida tooth and nail until early uh, mid-December. So that's on Thursday. On Friday, another name is dropping with Corian Gibson announcing his decision, talented defensive back out of Lancaster uh, Lancaster High School in the DFW area. Uh, Texas is squarely in the mix, along with a couple of other decent programs, Ohio State and Clemson. How are you feeling about uh, the Longhorns landing Gibson when it's all said and done? 
I feel fantastic. I have not changed my stance. I think he gave it away at the Texas Relays. Joe Cook and I were there. My, my partner down at Inside Texas, we were there. And Gibson basically told us, look, I kind of already know where I want to go. I'm going to take a few official visits in June just to make sure, just to just to fill out the process. But I, I think I already know where I want to go. I'm down the home stretch. And that was a change because he had talked about wanting to make a decision during his senior season, even at the end of his senior season. And, and now it, it shifted a little bit. So he took that visit to, to Clemson. He took three trips to Clemson in, in like four weeks. And it was correct. I mean, that's a lot, yeah. especially on your own dime. And I always felt if he left Clemson, not a tiger, Texas had a shot mm. when he went to Ohio state. That's, that's one of the best, if not the best recruiting uh, programs when it comes to defensive backs in the last 10, 15 years, I felt if he left Ohio state and he's not a Buckeye, Texas has a great shot. And then he took that last official to, 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 to Austin. That was the one that he wanted to save for last and him and Jordan Johnson rebel, one of the newest uh, commitments, they grew up together outside of Fort Worth. A lot of these guys know each other. You know, Anthony Hill, Jonte Cook, Manny Muhammad, Colin Simmons, Corey Gibson, Kobe Black. They're all friends. This is a relationship recruitment. And, and when he went, when he came in for his official, it was like a family reunion, he said. And so I think Corian gave it away at Texas Relays where he really wants to go. I think he was true to his word. He went and he hit a few other schools for officials to, to make sure now he's ready. It'll be on Saturday. At, at Lancaster High School on the 22nd at 3 o'clock. Inside Texas will be there. I'll be there. Uh, we're going to be waiting. Lots of covered, lots of coverage. And um, like Robinson, I feel good about Gibson and Texas chances. What sort of player is Texas getting, assuming that things go uh, the way that you know that they will, with Gibson at that cornerback position? You're getting a guy that can play all three spots in that secondary. He plays safety for Lancaster, but he has unique attributes for the star nickel position. He also has the possibility of playing corner, which is actually where Texas is recruiting him. He has the hips. He has the feet, and he, and he knows how to read his keys. He has good eyes. This is a guy that can do a little bit of everything, and we've noticed that Terry Joseph and Blake Gideon have a type, and that's the type that can play multiple positions back there. If you'll notice some of these recruits in the last couple of cycles – they're very versatile. That's just how they are. And Gibson, you know, it, it, you're a corner until you're a safety at this level. If you can play, it's so much harder to find a cornerback than it is a safety. And I think that's the best thing about Gibson, that and his track prowess. You know, Lancaster's known for their track and field. Gibson is a is a hoss on the track. Um, he is, he's a 100 to 200 and a, and a relays guy. Texas has been trying to inject athleticism into that back five. Now they're going to try to get Gibson in the mix, high four star out of, out of the DFW area. Uh, they're getting a if they get him, it's a very he's just a very versatile, fast, quick, and intelligent kid who will be enrolling early. And Justin, you told me uh, prior to us hitting record that Texas is going to be hosting some Matter Day guys at the end of this month too. Yes, Santa Ana, California. Listen. Texas is trying to put a flag in modern day, one of the biggest and best high school football programs in the nation. There's a lot of familiarity there. Sark, obviously, from the West Coast. His son, Brady Sarkeesian, played there. He's actually a walk-on on the team right now. He'll be, he joined the team this, year, this summer. Um, they signed Spencer Shannon, six-foot-six, tight end. 
uh, there last year. And so they're trying to establish a pipeline. And that's what great programs do. They go find these big powerhouse places and they recruit that current class. And then they recruit the next class and then the next. And that word of mouth is so underrated in recruiting. And I mean, and I say that because they're looking at some of these 2024s, obviously, Brandon Baker, top offensive tackle in the country, DeAndre Carter, another guy that Texas is in the mix with on, at, at the offensive line, a four-star. But this is really about the 2025s because you've got Jordan Davison, one of the top tailbacks in the nation coming on campus. We know how Tashard Choice is. He sees the top tailback rank. He goes gets the top tailback rank. That's kind of his M.O. And I know they're in a great spot with him already. Marcus Harris. High four-star out of modern day. He's making his first appearance in Austin. And his big thing is he wants to meet Sark per, per, you know, face-to-face. He wants to see Texas for the first time. But also, Chris Jackson. He's got a pretty good building relationship there with, with Coach Jackson, who happened to play high school football at modern day. Hmm. And so there's so many familiarity and connections there. They're going to be on campus on July 25th. Them also a, a 2026 prospect linebacker defensive end named Sean Scott. Anytime you can plant a flag at a place like Modern Day, you do it. Texas has already kind of, you know, they, they've gone in and, and done the plumbing for the for, for the pipeline. Now they just need to add a few more drops of oil so they can turn that valve on and let it really flow. Love to hear it. He is Justin Wells of Inside Texas, InsideTexas.com, and the On Texas Football YouTube channel joins me every Tuesday starting at 10.15 for a couple of segments. All right, we're through the recruiting now. Very important news. Now we can have more of an abstract conversation coming up on the other side, having to do with SEC media days and the effect on Texas and Oklahoma and their effect on the conference, too, if we're being completely honest, on what media days is going to look like next year. Coming up on The Night Talker. It's The Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's The Night Talker with Trey Elling. Back with Justin Wells of Inside Texas, InsideTexas.com and the On Texas Football YouTube channel. Joins me every Tuesday at 10.15 to talk Longhorn sports and more. By the way, coming up starting in August, we're actually going to shift things from Tuesday to Wednesday night. I prefer all things equal to uh, speak with Justin, the dead center of the week. And so starting in August, when fall camp gets going for the Longhorns, for the Cowboys, and everybody else engaged in fall football, uh, that will be on Wednesday going forward. So uh, make note for those of you who tune in specifically to hear Justin on Tuesdays. All right, Justin, speaking of uh, camp get going, the unofficial start of the season always does feel like media days. You and I spoke at Big 12 Media Days at Jerry World last week. And going on right now is SEC Media Days in Nashville. Things kicked off for them yesterday with Greg Sankey's State of the Conference address. And one of the bigger pieces of news coming out of yesterday's SEC Media Days is that next year's Media Days is going to be in Dallas. Now, I was ecstatic about that because I will certainly do everything in my power to be there covering that event, and you were too. Interestingly, 
I've always enjoyed going to Jerry World or one year it was at the Star and just being on the field as you're talking to these football coaches. There's something very authentic feeling about that. They're shifting things inside to the Omni in downtown Dallas this next year, which I was kind of bummed about. But after talking with you, I'm actually a little bit more encouraged right now. So why did you love to hear that uh, this thing is moving uh, from Nashville to Dallas, of course, but is going to be back at the Omni Hotel next year? Okay, I'll be honest. My first reaction was our first SEC media days, and we're going to keep it in Dallas, where I've attended every Big 12 media days for the last 11 years. I thought, why are we keeping it in Dallas? And then I learned some background to it. There was there was more. There were more details. I learned that the uh, the way it was phrased by Brett McMurphy of the stadium was that now that Texas and Oklahoma are in the SEC, why not have it in the Longhorn State? So I thought that was an interesting uh, way to way to way to word it. A source told him that out, from inside the SEC. Yeah, and then wow. we find out it's at the Omni. And for those that don't know, that's where the Big Twelve Media Days used to be held. And the Omni in Dallas is is an outstanding hotel. But it, it the beauty of it is everything is centralized in one place. You don't have to stay somewhere else and drive and park. You don't have to you don't you, you don't have to leave and then come back. They offer Wi-Fi, which I think is such a big thing in the media world these days. The Omni is a one-stop shop. You can cross paths with players and coaches during a press conference and then cross paths again in the weight room that evening. Or one morning, I, I woke up early for a run and Art Bryles was in there for a run. So I was able to you know talk to him for 10 minutes just off the record, catching up with him. This probably would have been... What at the height of his powers at Baylor before everything went uh, extremely yes, south this was for him? The Is that year right? after this was 2014, the year after they won their first Big 12 championship. Okay, so Art Bryles has obviously had a reputation for a, a long time as being right. a, a real a hole as a football coach. Like even going back to his time at Stephenville High School, right? And we all know what has happened since then, and uh, just how at best he was uh, negligently asleep at the wheel at Baylor and. Uh, the the worst scenario is much worse than that. We're not going to rehash that right here, though. I had inter- interviewed Art Browse, I want to say, a couple of times prior to that ever happening, even knowing his reputation. Like, I, I walked away from the conversation thinking that the guy was, like, terse and honest, but also, like, weirdly pleasant, too. What was your impression of him over that 10 minutes? That's a unique point of view, Trey. I, I, I like that. He's, you know, I was fortunate enough. I met Art Browse like 15 years ago, okay. uh, maybe almost 20 years ago. Um, my, one of my closest friends, like a brother, played football at, at, at Houston with Bryles and coached mm-hmm. there actually with him at Houston and at Baylor. And so I've known Coach Bryles for, for a little while. So there's a little bit of familiarity there, but I don't think people remember. There were a couple of years at the Big 12 Media Days where he ran it. He had that good old voice you know, sense to him. He always had clever and witty answers. If you tried to talk X's and O's, he would shut it down with the quickness. But he was just, he kind of came off as a good old boy. I remember, I, I believe it was a someone from the Austin American Statesman was doing uh, a story about what was your first job? And she'd ask Bill Schneider, you know, what was your first job, you know, coaching job? And I believe he was a eighth grade Spanish teacher and he coached girls middle school volleyball and basketball if I remember correctly you know and and he would tell you you know how much he made and things like that that's a great question by the way it was and so she asked Art Bryles you know what was your first job and and what did you make he was like by God 
you can't ask me how much I make. That's like asking me what church I go to. And so Art Browse was clever and he was quick. And yes, there's a stigma and there's a story behind the stuff that happened at Baylor. And we're not going to get into that. But just from our interaction, that's who Art Browse was. He was like an old Texas high school football coach. He, he, he loved talking ball. Okay. None of the other bull. He just wanted to talk ball. And I'm telling you, if you sat and talked to him for 15 minutes off the record, you learned something. Anything else that uh, Sankey has talked about or any of the players that you've heard from that stands out to you? The biggest thing for me is him seemingly uh, doing the NCAA's bidding for them with regards to NIL and some sort of federal legislation happening. It's not a surprise necessarily. All the conference commissioners are going to do that and certainly the ADs, but also coaches too because they are trying to come to some sort of consensus and the only way for that to happen is federal legislation. But I think... I feel like their plan is still a little bit behind. Like they're focusing on things that are trying to be a little bit too protective of the member institutions. Like I pressed a couple of ADs last week on the idea that college football players are never going to be university employees. Like that is a a clear step to me that you can kind of get things going in the right direction and calm down some of the offseason craziness because everybody's talking about multi-year deals. How can you have a guy signing a multi-year contract but not consider that person an employee of the entity that they're putting their body on the line for. There's so many loose ends. Yeah, they get to clean up the mess. They have to figure out the best way to to, to, to get those things done. When is it going to happen, Trey? Man, I don't know. This is going to be a conversation I feel like you and I are going to have again at some point down the road. But right now, I, I'll say this. The SEC, I, I can't think of another guy other than Greg Sankey that, that is in a better has that group in a better direction. I think he knows exactly what that conference needs, wants. I think his vision is 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 better than the rest by miles. And I think at some point they'll get some clarity and it won't change the fact that the SEC is still probably going to be putting out a few of the best teams in the country year in and year out. I'd like to say that decision-making gets a lot easier when you're from a position of power, and I think ultimately it does if you're talking about a good decision-maker, but we've watched a lot of people in powerful positions make terrible decisions from a position position of perceived power. So I agree with you. Greg Sankey, it may in some senses be the easiest job uh, as far as a major uh, conference commissioner goes, but he's also still making the right calls too. So you got, you yeah. do have to give him credit for that. And he's showing a certain savvy as well and not necessarily acting in a rash manner because so much of the landscape is changing. It reminds me of the loss of Dodds. At some point he was in, he had the, the, the program in such a good position. He didn't really have to do a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. He just had to hold his hand on the steering wheel. The people he put in place were doing their job and doing it at a very, very high clip and so that, to me, it's kind of similar. You know, Sankey's not trying to overcoach. He knows he's driving the baddest car in the, in the dealership. He's just letting everybody see it as he slowly creeps by. <laughs> Classy move, too, by him, uh, by him, recounting that Mike Leach story from last year's SEC Media Days, where Mike Leach is like, how is the necktie stuck around? We got rid of the powdered wig, but the necktie is still a part of fashion. So he chose to go sans tie at this year's SEC Media Days in honor of Coach Leach. Let's hope that's just the the path forward as a, uh, an eternal it. tribute you to You know what Leach. else? I love Joey McGuire's interlining of his jacket. 
Yeah. Uh, he had a debt, you know, he dedicated that to, to Mike Leach. And, and I know the Mike Leach family has so much disdain for Texas tech, but that doesn't take away from Joey McGuire having the good heart and, ha- you know, being in the right mind and really doing a really cool thing for a legendary coach. Let me just say this about Texas tech real quick. This will be the last thing here. Mike Leach despised uh, a, a few specific individuals at Texas Tech, but Mike Leach always loved the Texas Tech community itself, and I do feel like that level of respect was reciprocated, and so it was great to learn at Big 12 Media Days last week that uh, they were planning on putting Cliff Kingsbury in their ring of honor uh, after uh, Leach's unfortunate passing uh, last December. They actually made the decision to include him in their ring of honor as well, which is very fitting, obviously, but it's yeah. also really cool because Dana Holgerson and Houston are going to be there that weekend, so he's going to get to be a part of things. And ultimately, I think this is righting a major wrong uh, when that university chose to ignore the fact, allegedly, that Craig James killed five hookers to uh, take uh, what he was saying about what what was happening in practice uh, at more than face value. So uh, kudos to Texas Tech for uh, putting Leach in the ring of honor next year. I will add this too. If they really want to make it right with Mike Leach and his family, pay him. Look, I'm not going to argue with you on that one either. Give it, give me the, I'm telling you, I think this is great from a Texas Tech standpoint, a PR standpoint, and a just great college football national story standpoint. But don't get it twisted. There's there is no love between his family and that in that university, and I think that is the fence that needs to be fixed. You know what? There are reasons why I talk to you about things because you provide a ton of insight and there's another excellent, insightful moment. He is Justin Wells, Inside Texas, InsideTexas.com, the On Texas Football YouTube channel, and he joins this show every week. Up to now, it has been Tuesdays at 10.15. That will remain the case for, I want to say, another week. But starting in August, it will be August 2nd. He will be showing up on Wednesday, so dead center of the week, starting at 10.15. Make sure to check him out then and there and all over the interwebs. Justin, thank you as always for the time. Always a pleasure. Hey, nothing but love, Trey. Coming up and where are we at in society? The Homeless World Cup is apparently a thing, and it just played for the first time in the U.S. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Final segment of tonight's show means it's time for... Where are we at in society today? That's right. It is your nightly look at stories that show we as a people are headed in the wrong direction. Very occasionally, I will give you a story that provides a sense of optimism that has us all saying to ourselves, hey, maybe all is not lost. Maybe we as a people are starting to figure something out and we're going to end up victorious in the end. And guess what? Tonight is that night. That is because... We start in a state where we don't often have these sorts of stories that give a sense of optimism or have a feel-good nature about them, but we do start in California, where the Homeless World Cup made its U.S. debut in California and scored victories beyond the field for its players. This according to the AP. The story talks about a woman named Lisa Reitzman, who was a former college soccer player who unfortunately ended up homeless as a result of 
drug addiction and eventually made her way back to the sport through this tournament that's for players from around the uh, globe who have experienced homelessness. She actually qualified for the Homeless World Cup in Brazil and she calls it a competition that would forever change her life. Originally from Sacramento, when Lisa returned to Sacramento... Literally went to visit her friends at a sober living facility. And her friends were in unison and agreeing and telling her that they want to feel the way that she looks right now. And she says, I actually started to feel value. The whole tournament, it kind of instills you with that. So she's now actually the coach for the U.S. women's team in the Homeless World Cup. And this tournament debuted in the U.S., On July 8th, in Sacramento, Lisa's hometown. California, of course, has the largest homeless population in the country. The tournament ran through last Saturday and serves as a sort of precursor to the... I hate to say actual because I don't want to diminish what's going on here, but the actual Women's World Cup. Let's just call it what it is. The actual Women's World Cup is taking part in what? New Zealand, maybe Australia, starting next month. Now, the tournament was on a three-year hiatus due to, what else, the pandemic. And unfortunately, during that time, we've seen a skyrocketing in homeless populations throughout the U.S. In Sacramento, the homeless population increased 70% between 2020 and 2022. There are 30 countries competing in the Homeless World Cup with teams that include people who have lived on the streets, refugees, and even some foster children, too. From one of the players, Yuli Pineda, who moved to California from Honduras, was living with a foster family when she joined. Quote, every single player comes from different backgrounds. It's amazing that in a short amount of time, We've connected that fast. And look, we many of us, myself included, you hopefully listening right now, have been a part of a team sport and can understand the value of playing sports. Really at any age, there is the, a sort of camaraderie that comes into play that is extremely valuable for the individual. And hopefully everyone coming together for that greater good that benefits the team as well. Lawrence Can is the founder of Street Soccer USA, which organizes the men's and women's teams for the U.S. Quote, imagine if you're isolated. You feel some level of shame with everything that comes along with being homeless. This gives you a natural way to connect to the largest community in the world, which is the soccer community. Mel Young co-founded the organization that's running the tournament in the U.S. this year. She does believe that this will build players' confidence to achieve their goals beyond the games. Quote, the events are fantastic. I urge anyone to come and watch. But it's about moving on. It's about impact. It's about people changing their lives. Mel Young herself has witnessed that transformation years ago. He said he got on a bus in his native Scotland and was surprised to find out the driver was a former player who competed in the tournament. 
The driver told Young he got his bus driving license after the games, was living in an apartment, and engaged to be married. So there you go. There's a, an anecdote of the turnaround. Now, things are a little bit different with the Homeless World Cup. As you can imagine, they don't have a ton of tri- time to train or get in shape. Well, don't they have the time, though, to train and get in shape? I don't know. Perhaps a semantic question there. And because it was hot in Sacramento this year during the tournament with temperatures regularly surpassing 100 degrees, some of the games were scheduled for later in the day, but they were all scheduled for much shorter than your typical soccer game, which I think I can speak for everybody when I say thank you. 45-minute halves plus the extra time. The extra time is so cockamamie, by the way. Don't even get me started on that and all of soccer's flaws. But nobody wants to sit and watch anybody play soccer for 45-minute halves, except, I guess, the highest level of professionalism. So way to go, Homeless World Cup, for having the halves capped at seven minutes apiece plus extra time. Each country can bring a men's and women's team, and women can compete on the men's team if their country is not bringing a women's team. That's fair. Well, it's not fair for the women having to compete against the men, but at least you're giving them an outlet, I guess. One of the days at Sac State's Hornet Stadium where all the games were played, players tried to cool down by sitting in shade under bleachers and tents or by placing wet towels around their necks. I feel like the populace of players will be pretty savvy when it comes to learning how to escape the heat or cool down if you're feeling a little bit too hot. In the stands, spectators waved flags and sported jerseys and caps to show support for their country's team. I can only imagine that the cardboard sign game at the Homeless World Cup was also very on point. I'm thinking... Professional wrestling level quality cardboard signs with writing on them, with messages specific to players or teams, or maybe you're just pandering to the TV cameras. Perhaps if you have a little bit of extra, you can slip somebody a a little bit of dough for that sign, for that effort, or for anybody else on the field too. I hope they're making a little bit of cheese on this. I don't know. It's probably free admission to get in to watch Homeless people play one another in soccer. And I know that, yeah, this is maybe going to help get them going in the right direction again, provide a, a level of encouragement, but hopefully there is some financial incentive too. Let's not treat these homeless people like they're, I don't know, college athletes from three years ago. But there you have it. The rare positive story in where we at in society. You're welcome. Moving on now from California to Hong Kong, where Hong Kong is attempting to create a tobacco-free city. And rather than just make it illegal and fining and potentially jailing the most egregious violators of things, the city's Health minister, the territory's health minister, excuse me, is encouraging the residents of Hong Kong to stare at smokers disapprovingly as part of their efforts to create a tobacco-free city. 
Professor Lo Chung Mao said, people who have lit up in areas where it's prohibited are unlikely to hit back if everyone stares at them. Quote, cigarettes can harm the health for all of us. When the members of the public see people smoking in non-smoking areas, even if no law enforcement officers can show up immediately, we can stare at smokers. When someone takes out a cigarette at a restaurant, everyone on the premises can stare at that person. I do not believe that person would dare hit back at everyone at the restaurant is simply staring. Well, staring is rude, but I guess if you are trying to outwardly shame the person who's smoking the cigarette, maybe it can have the desired effect, or maybe that person smoking the cigarette is just going to start blowing smoke in faces. And then it turns into an all-out fist fight, which would probably also stop the smoking too, unless you're talking about a Jean-Claude Van Damme type who's going to waste everybody in the room. So good luck to those trying to force others to quit smoking by staring at them in Hong Kong. All right, one little update uh, before we bid you adieu for the night. Last week we talked about how uh, the sports radio station across town, my former employer, 104.9 The Horn, had told their air staff that they would be going off the air at the end of the month. And I know that you're not supposed to root for and against anything. If anybody, you're, if anything, you're supposed to root against those that you are competing against. But the bottom line is, is that place means a lot to me, and so do the people who are still a part of things. And uh, an update from last week. This is from the Horn in their Twitter account. Even though they're losing the 104.9 signal, which is the better signal, they're keeping their other two lesser signals, 101.9 and AM 1260, and going to try and do some combination of local and national programming. I don't know what that is. Good luck to those guys, and congratulations on getting to continue for at least a little bit longer. And my heart still goes out to anybody who is affected who is looking at possibly being unemployed heading into the football season. You may hear from some of those people coming up on this show uh, once we cross that August 1st threshold. Thank you so much for listening tonight. We'll be back tomorrow at 10. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the evening and sweet dreams. It's the Night Talker with Trey Ellings.